Today we're going to walk through our last week of Advent. Uh, Advent is, uh, if you were like me five years ago, a word that I had never heard of. Uh, maybe you heard the term Advent and think, is this guy speaking in a foreign language up here? Is it Spanish? What's going on? Advent is this Latin term for coming or arrival. And the, the word Advent really is two different things. It's an event and it's a season. And so it's an event that talks about the coming of Christ. So the first coming, the first advent of Christ is something that we are celebrating in this season, right? That the coming of Christ in baby, in Bethlehem, who came to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, to live, uh, to be raised again, to bring us into the new lift of life. That, it's an event, that coming. But it's also another event, the second coming of Christ, when someday God will come back and fulfill all of our hopes, all of our desires, and he will judge the world, and he will set up his everlasting kingdom here on earth. And so Advent is an event, but it's also a season. It's a season that we celebrate here in January, where we kind of reflect backwards towards the ancient expectancy of our brothers and sisters who lived at this time of the line, this A.D., B.C. line, and kind of reflect on their life and their journey towards the coming Messiah, God in flesh, in Jesus, that in reflecting, we might renew our own hope and our desires for him to come again. That we would see our brothers and sisters, our ancient ancestors, who were held captive, who were promised a coming Messiah, a Savior that would deliver them, that would fulfill what they had longed for, what they would hope for, and that we would remember that God delivered on those promises, that he did not leave them in vain, and that he will again do the same thing. As we wait for him to come, we can take comfort knowing that God has delivered on his promises in the past, he has delivered on his word, and he will be faithful to do the same thing in the future. It will happen again, and so in this season of Advent, we are celebrating and reflecting that our hearts might grow renewed in hope and desire for his return. And in this season, there's lots of things that we can glean and understand uh, about those who lived during this timeline of when Jesus came that, that will help us. The, the mistakes that they made, uh, the, the things that they did, uh, uh, all of them are written in the story of God that is found in our word, written so that we can learn. And so we can learn a lot from our people of the mistakes that they made, but we can also learn from who Jesus associated himself with. And so over this last month, what we have walked through is, is to understand that the people at the time of the birth of Christ were more often than not looking through the long, wrong lens of what the Messiah would be. Because they were oppressed, because they were held captive, they were projecting their own inadequacies and hope for earthly domination onto the coming Messiah, that he would come in a way that would bring them earthly justice and vengeance. They were looking for the Messiah to be much like that of King David, who would restore them to dominance and flourishing on the earth. Yet we know today that, that Jesus never came to lead a revolt against the Romans, yet never led a revolt against any political structure, but rather he raged a war against sin and death and brokenness. He established a kingdom uh, and a kingship, not on an earthly throne, but on a spiritual throne, 
one that would not lead men and women away from worldly oppression, but one that would lead the hearts of men and women away from spiritual and eternal condemnation. His throne is established in the hearts of men and women who trust in him by faith and faith alone. And because our ancestors were looking in the wrong place, they missed it. They missed the beauty and the magnitude of Christ. And we can learn from that. And something else that we learned as we walked through this season of Advent was the significance of the type of people that Jesus associated himself with on earth. Jesus was born to a poor carpenter family. He was heralded and proclaimed by lowly shepherds, sought out by foreigners and widows, those on the edge of society. He was escorted not by the royalty of the time, not applauded by kings or queens. He did not keep company with the elite. A holy and perfect and glorious God, no one greater in all of creation, side by side with everyday people like you and I. And that is phenomenal news for you and I, that God has shown us that his kingdom will not be determined by status or rank or title or riches nor ability, but rather his kingdom will be made available to those who trust in his name by faith those who have been given grace through his sacrifice and resurrection. And that is good news for all of us here today. And so today, in our time in Advent here, to close it out, we're going to turn our attention back to the lives of those who lived during this timeline, during the, the time of the line, to see what we can learn, the warnings and lessons that we can interpret, to the insight that we can learn about who God really is and what he requires of us. And what we will see today is the tragedy of self-righteousness and its effect on salvation. Self-righteous means to be confident in one's own virtue or ethic, to be smugly moralistic and narrow-minded about our own opinions and reject the behaviors and thoughts of others. It is to believe what the world needs is more of me. Not me, all of us. That this world's problems would be solved if everybody thought and acted like I did. And in that self-righteousness, what happens over time is we lose the ability to see our own limitations and our own faults, our own flaws. And because pride and self-righteousness are inseparably linked, more often than not, those who are self-righteous will never see it. They will never see it unless God spiritually breaks in their heart. And if we can't see self-righteousness, we have to know that there are dire consequences. Dire consequences. And so we're going to turn to Luke 4 today and read a story that's connected to kind of the first kind of ministry push of Jesus Although it's not directly linked to the birth of Christ, it's maybe not the most Adventy of all Advent services. It does serve as a watershed moment when one has to decide whether Jesus is the Messiah or he is something else. And so to pick up this story, to bring some context into this, uh, Jesus has been on earth here in Luke 4 for about 30 years. Uh, in our scriptures, we don't know a whole lot about Jesus' childhood. We don't know much about his young adult 
life, one would rightly assume that he probably would be performing the duties of his father's trade. His father was a carpenter, and so Jesus is, is working as a carpenter, and he is preparing himself for the day in which he will boldly reveal who he is to the world. And so before we pick up Luke 4, we see that Jesus was presented at the temple as the firstborn son. We talked about that a few weeks ago, that he was then baptized by John the Baptist. The father parts the clouds. God speaks down from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is tempted in the desert for 40 days, and then he does some healing and miracles around Capernaum, and then we pick up the action here in Luke 4. Jesus has a habit of going to synagogue, and he is going to step back into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, something that he has done his whole childhood. And so we read this together. Starting in Luke 4, verse 16, it says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote, to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you that there will be many, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zaphirath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman and the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So in a really concise overview, Jesus is teaching in a worship setting, and those in attendance go from marveling at his words to being so worked up that they attempt to kill him. Now, listen, uh, just as a side note, I know that the book of Timothy says that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, and rebuking. But I would argue the passage about the congregation trying to kill their pastor uh, might not be exactly what Timothy had in mind when he quoted that, okay? Just in case anybody's getting any ideas. Uh, As I read this, one of the things that kept popping out to me was this stark irony 
of Jesus, who is the full radiance of the Father, full radiance of God in flesh, sitting in a church service. I mean, doesn't that just sound crazy? Imagine the pressure on you as a pastor when somebody would tell you, hey, the Son of God is sitting in today. Like, but yet it was his habit to go to synagogue on the Sabbath day according to his custom. And I am sure that there would be things that he would radically disagree with, traditions that would grate on him, yet he went. The, synagogue, the worship in the synagogue surely wasn't perfect. I'm sure his father was a better speaker, right? The angels probably led the chorus lines a little bit better, but yet Jesus never omitted joining together with God's worshiping people on God's given day. He never concerned himself with personal enjoyment, but rather focused with reverence, contrition, and worship to the Father. I think there are great lessons for us in that. And so in the synagogue, Jesus chooses and is given this scroll that contains the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and he turns to what we know today in, in our chapter system as Isaiah 61, and he re reads the first two verses, and upon reading them, he stands up, which is customary at that time that you would stand up to read scripture, and then you would sit down, if you were a teacher, to teach, and so he sits down afterwards. And what I want us to notice here is that Jesus actually stops in the midst of a verse. He reads 61, 1 and 2, but he stops in the middle of 61, 2. 61, 2 actually says this. It says, to proclaim the year of the Lord, which Jesus said. And then it goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And I think Jesus did that on purpose. Jesus is deliberate here in two different ways. Uh, one, he's omitting this to not speak to this general narrative that is being believed by many, that God is going to come and wipe out their enemies, that he's going to deliver them into earthly power. But more importantly, Jesus is omitting this because it speaks to his second coming. That prophecy would not be fulfilled until Christ comes for the second time, when he judges the earth all of those who reject the name of Christ, that is the day of vengeance. The first coming is about the kingdom. It's about salvation by grace coming into. And so he omits that. And so he reads and he sits down, and in this word it says that all the eyes of the synagogue are upon him. And I want you to know that is written in there as a literary device to say what is going to be said next is very important for you to listen to. All the eyes are on the synagogue around him, and he says, he says, the prophecy that you just heard is fulfilled in me. He is the one sent to bring the good news to the poor. He is the one that is sent to recover the sight for the blind. He is the one that will liberate the captives. And listen, there would have been no confusion in this crowd on what Jesus is saying. He is saying that he is the Messiah. And the message that he is saying is that I am here. God has arrived. I am coming to bring my people back. I'm coming to restore them. The new kingdom of God has begun where salvation will not be determined, determined by your nobility, by your class, by your title, by your money, which is this. Everything that you in attendance are, it will not determine the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying to the crowd there. Everything that you are, here will not determine your salvation in this new kingdom of God. 
but rather the kingdom will be given to those who can see and confess their own spiritual poverty, their own spiritual blindness, and their own spiritual brokenness. The poor, the blind, the captive, and the impressed. This is why Jesus uses this prophecy in 61. Salvation will come to those not of great stature, but those who are poor in stature. And it echoes exactly what Jesus says in in Luke 6, in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is theirs. And these men marveled. They marveled. But as much as they marveled, because they understood exactly what he was implying, they could not accept such lofty claims from somebody they knew who had grown up in their midst as the son of God of a carpenter. Can you hear it? Well, there's no way that that could be true because he's a a carpenter. He's not one of us. That's Joseph's son. That's Mary's boy. How could this be true? Can you hear the self-righteousness, the pride there? Jesus does. He does. He knows they're discounting him He knows they won't believe him, and he says, doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, physician, heal yourself. In other words, what he is saying, I I know that you're going to say, prove it. Show me something. But he knows that it won't matter because they can't get past his message and they can't get past his pedigree. These men themselves admit to knowing and hearing about the miracles that he performed in Capernaum, not just 20 miles away from them, Nobody is doubting the validity of those miracles. In fact, no Jewish person or Jewish leader ever doubts the validity of Jesus' miracles in the entirety of the New Testament. They know that he does miracles. This isn't an honest question. They're not looking for evidence. They will never believe them. They will never believe Jesus. And in fact, some year and a half later, Jesus comes back to the same synagogue, his hometown, and he says the exact same thing. A prophet is not accepted in his hometown. Despite the fact in a year and a half, Jesus has done marvelous signs and wonders. He's eradicated disease from the land of Israel. They still do not believe because they will never believe. Because they can't get past themselves. They can't get past their own goodness, their own virtue, their own ethics. They're self-righteous. Too much pride. And then Jesus reminds them, this is the Son of God. He knows their hearts. He knows their minds. And he reminds them of two other prophets who were rejected by their own people, the prophet prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. And what he is saying is, look, I know there was hard time in the land of Israel in the past, but you rejected my sent people to you. And because of that, God sent them elsewhere. He did it with Elijah and Elisha. Instead of showing mercy and grace to the Israelites who rejected him, he gave mercy and grace to the Gentiles. You and I, people of not of Jewish birth, and this proves to be the spark that lit the flame. What Jesus is insinuating is that God will again withhold his grace from them. And give it to the Gentiles, those not of Jewish birth, because they refuse to see within the midst of them God himself. 
They cannot get past themselves. And how quickly their marveling turns to wrath. But despite their attempts, I love that last line. He just, he just floated through them. I don't, how did he get away from it? He's the son of God. It just <laughs> was not his time yet. And so just in summary, we have this profound beauty of the gospel, of the, the beauty of the kingdom of God through Christ that will be made available to all who trust in his name by faith, righteous through the means of grace, not through effort. And that message is coming against a group of self-righteous, prideful people who are blinded by their own goodness, their own ethics, refusing to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Because it wasn't what they wanted to hear, and it wasn't spoken by somebody they thought to be worthy to say it. And Jesus' warnings about God's grace going elsewhere, if he were rejected, proved to be true. Jesus was rejected by his people. They put him on the cross. God raised him from the dead according to his plan and brought salvation to the world. Grace was given to the whole world through faith in Christ. And all those who can see their brokenness, their ineptness, rejoice. But those who remain prideful and self-righteous stand condemned. You see, there's one common factor amongst everybody who rejects the name of Christ. Everybody who chooses not to follow Jesus. It's true back then and it's still true today. The one common factor is self-righteousness. The inability for one to see themselves as spiritually broken, depraved, and confess it to God and accept his grace that enables us to live. So this is the big idea here. Salvation is not possible without confession of spiritual blindness. It is not possible without a confession of spiritual blindness. And so listen, in this secular world, we like to contend that people are inherently good. That we, uh, we need just to believe more in ourselves. We need to like ourselves more. There aren't bad people. There are only those who think badly about themselves. And in that manner of speaking, what they are saying is that, yeah, we, you were born to win. You were, you were born to win. And all you need to do is find the right path, find the right people, find the right thinking or the right perspective, and then you're going to start thriving. You're going to start winning. Does that feel true? Uh, do you think that's true? H how many of us in this room feel like we're winning in life? Uh, I have been a part of a class here in church called Men's Fraternity, and I would just boldly go out and say, if you're a man in here and you've not taken Men's Fraternity, it goes to the top of your list. Men's fraternity will teach you and show you what God has called us to be as men, not just for our families, but for this world. And in that class, we are going through uh, this very same subject of spiritual brokenness. And in that class, Robert Lewis, who, who leads uh, the curriculum on, on the video that we will watch, uh, speaks about a survey that was taken in 1940. And in that survey, there was a question that said, are you an important person? And in 1940, 11% of the people who filled out that survey responded back with, yes, I am an important person. 
And some years later, in, in 1995, a survey was given with that kind of same exact question. Are you an important person? And that time, the survey came back with 66% of people said that I am an important person. I wonder what that survey would say today. 11% in 1940, 66% in 1995. I wonder what it would say today. You know, I, I, look, don't get me wrong. I think it's great that we feel better about ourselves. I think it's good that you like you. But Lewis contends this question, and I contend the same question. Are we living any better? Are we living any better? Is marriage in a better state? Are we winning more? He goes on to talk about a test that was given in math amongst all the countries in the world. A test, and at the top of that test was a question, are you good at math? That was the question. And here's the startling reality. America finished first in response to that question. 68% of the people who took that test in America said, yes, I'm good at math. Do you know where America finished in that test, the actual test part? Last. South Korea, 25% said, I'm good at math. Finished first. Could it be possible that there is something deeper that is wrong with us than you just not feeling good about yourself? Could it be that there is something spiritual that has gone wrong with you? Could it possibly be that the lacking that you feel is because you're defective by nature, depraved, born of sin? As a church, we are quick to speak about the love and the sacrifice of Jesus, but we hesitate and bringing the understanding of why that sacrifice needed to be made, why that love needs to be placed in our lives. We say this verse all the time, Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is wicked and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus himself in Mark 7, talking about what condemns somebody, what makes somebody unclean, says it's not what's on the outside of a person, but rather what comes out from their heart that defiles a person. And what comes out of the heart of men is evil thoughts, debauchery. Romans 3 says that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is broken and fallen. Many of you know that I came to faith when I was 17 years old. I didn't have a church background, and let me be honest, I praise God that I didn't have a church background. At 17 years old, I just knew that the, the version of myself at that point needed a change, and Jesus made himself available to me. And I would say to you that for 12 or 14 or 15 years, I journeyed with Jesus never knowing the issue of sin and my depravity in my life. Nobody told me. It wasn't until I'm 30 that I learned about my broken heart. And it changed my world. I didn't know what salvation really was. I had this understanding that I was good, just not good enough. Good, just not quite good enough. And that's why I needed Jesus. And certainly that made sense to me because I felt lacking. And so I like to think I was like, I was like 67% good. 
but right around 67% good. And what I needed was that other 33% provided by Jesus. And so that's why I needed his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace in my life. And so that's what I did. Accepted Jesus, 33% more goodness. And I just tried to live my life to please God. I tried to take his scriptures and kind of clean myself up to look good. I even went into ministry with a vision of trying to help people live a better life to clean themselves up. The problem was this. My life wasn't any better. My life wasn't any better. It wasn't until I learned about the brokenness and corruption in my heart that my life began to change, to learn that I've been cursed because of sin, that I'm fallen and defective at odds by nature with the Creator. Even my goodness, my 67%, wasn't good enough for God. I was a 100% bad. 100% bad. It didn't, didn't mean I didn't do good things. It just means to a holy, perfect, reverent, glorious God, I was 100% bad. Because what level of disobedience is okay to a perfect God? Zero. I was zero. And God had to be 100. He had to be 100. Every desire, every thought, Everything was his. It had to be his, not mine. Because I've messed this thing up too many times to go down that road again. And maybe you feel that weight too. My life changed when I surrendered to God, my depravity, my brokenness, my wound in my heart. I said, Father, there's nothing good inside of me. I keep screwing this thing up. You're going to have to do it because I can't. And you know something crazy happened? That in my weakness... I became strong. That seems almost biblical, doesn't it? Because it is. God's strength is magnified through our weakness. And then people began to like notice, like, Steve, man, something's different in you. Like, you're growing. Like, you're not who I thought you were. I thought you were this guy. You're, you're not that person anymore. It's because I recognized that I was zero. And God had to be 100. Friends, can I tell you something? Friends, growth and maturation in Christ does not come through better moral teaching or catchy sayings. But heartfelt contrition and surrender is the pathway to wholeness with God. When we admit our weakness and our depravity, that is where the Lord finds us and begins his healing work. It's not through looking better or being more moralistic. It's about surrendering to the God of the cosmos who went so far to come in the form of a baby to bring you back to him. The congregation that was with Jesus could not see it. They could not understand it. They did not get it. Let's not make the same mistake. So listen, as we prepare for the revival of our Christ child, please understand this, that Jesus has to move from being a baby in the manger to being the Lord of your life. He can't just be a novelty item that we add on to our life, that extra 33% that makes me feel better about myself. He has to be everything.
Christmas is not a season that somebody made up to create some more community and, and better gift giving. It really happened. Some of us need to move past that, to stop putting Jesus at an add-on that makes us feel nice. The Jewish people loved his miracles, but they despised his message. Don't make the same mistake. There needs to be a watershed moment in every one of our lives where we are pressed with Jesus in our face that says, I'm either the Messiah that came to rescue you and I want everything or I'm not. And go live your life. Jesus is saying that the kingdom he brought is for those who are poor, captive, oppressed, and without hope outside of the Messiah. The baby in the manger means that God made himself available to you. Righteousness that you could never earn by your own self, despite your own self-delusions. A baby that would someday cure your heart wound and bring you back to him. But it starts with you understanding you need it and admitting to your poverty and your blindness. That's where it starts. That's the first step. So as we head into Christmas, let us challenge our hearts with what really what the Savior means for us. That we would check our desires, that we would pray that God would stir up new desires, new passions in our heart that put him at 100% and put us at zero. And so if you're in here today and, and that's something that you're wanting to do, know this, that we're going to be available as we sing this last song to pray with you. We want to walk with you. That's just the beginning of your journey. It's not the end. But if you're in here as well and, and there's something going on in your life and you need somebody just to pray over you to, to help you in this season, know that we are making ourselves available up here to pray with you. But in this time, would you stand with me and let's sing to our God.